1: Welcome to episode 255 with my guest, Tim F. I'm Paul Gill Martin. This is the mental illness happy hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go check out our beautifully, newly redesigned, uh, website. Um, been getting a ton of great feedback from, from people who, uh, who like it and say it's, uh, it's easier to navigate. Um, there's all kinds of stuff you could do there. You can fill out a survey anonymously and maybe we'll wind up reading it on the show. You can, um, donate to the show. You can read blogs. You can join the forum, all kinds of stuff. So, uh, please go check that out. Um, I hope your Bermuda triangle of uh the holiday season is is going okay. I don't know what else to call that uh that time between Thanksgiving and Christmas where um where a nap is like a nugget of gold. <laughs> I typically between Thanksgiving and Christmas will uh get up go to bed around 3 get up around eleven thirty and I'm back in bed by four o'clock. Sleep again from from four to six. And um I'm proud to say that I that I've not been shaming myself uh for it. I wish it were, <laughs> I wish it were different. Um but there's and it's not that I'm even tired. It's it's that and I know I've talked about this before, but um it's just that feeling of I I just don't want to I've had enough of the day at that point and it's really the the best that i can do and when i do wake up i feel even though it's the same day it feels like a different day and um i guess that has to work for me my wife and i were talking about this in in counseling one day and we're talking about how she loves the holidays and uh and i'm not a huge fan of them my depression tends to get worse and uh our therapist said well is there you know did something happen in your past and I said uh, you know I don't I don't think so uh, it's just uh it was just never a really fun time for me and my wife started laughing and she said are you forgetting about the time that uh, your dad tried to kill himself and you had to check him into a rehab on Christmas Eve and I had I had forgot about that um, but you know I was I was thinking about I was trying to come up with some Christmas memories. and It's not like Christmas was a horror story in my house. It was, I think it was the absence of things. Like I I just remembered this moment the other day. Um, My wife asked me, did you guys have a real tree or a fake tree when you were growing up? And we had a fake tree and I remember every year my dad would go downstairs into the basement and we kept it in this box. And he would take it out of the box and he would put it together and my brother and I would be there. I don't know if he wanted us to help him or not, but you could not have done it. My dad could not have done it with less joy. He, a a robot, had nothing on him. It was, there was no conversation. There was no smiling. It was, let's get this done as soon as possible. There was no enjoyment of anything, and I think I don't know, maybe genetically, I'm I'm that's that's how I am too, or maybe that's how his dad was with with him, and so that's what Christmas meant to him. Anyway, that uh, that's how I feel about the holidays, but I do en- I do enjoy seeing um, seeing my my wife uh, get excited by it, and uh, and I like too when I. When I find a present for somebody that I know they're really gonna like, that that uh, that brings me joy. Um, let's read a couple of surveys before we get to the interview with uh, with Tim F. This is uh, these are all struggle in a sentence. Uh, Jenny writes about her anxiety: I can't go in the store today. I don't know why. I just can't. About her OCD: If I don't cover all the mirrors, something is going to kill me. The Thief Inside Your Head is, uh, she writes about, she calls herself that, and uh, she writes about her depression, uh, her dysthymia. Feels like there's a thief inside my head, stealing away my motivation and joy, and he only wakes up when I do, so the longer I sleep, the less havoc he wrecks. I relate to that. Uh, About her trichotillomania, if I find all the kinks in my long, wavy hair and pull them all out, I'll be less imperfect, at least until I check again about her codependency. Maybe if I spend enough time fixing you and your problems, I'll magically fix my own. Emmy the Rabbit uh, writes about her depression, and she's uh, she's young. She's between 10 and 15. Uh, she writes, pulling three people up a hill since I was seven. Uh, snapshot from her life, I yelled at my drunk dad and want to kill myself. His answer was, no, let me do it for you. When my mom sleeps through the morning and my brother and I need to go to school, I would walk him to school, but he has serious anxiety and won't leave the house without my mom. Uh, Emmy, I am not a professional, but um, I want to encourage you to talk to someone, to find a safe adult to share this with, um, maybe a teacher at school, um, but you deserve better than this. And that that is um, that is not acceptable for parents to treat children like that. And you are not a bad person, but you probably know that. Um, this is filled out by Henry. Uh, he's also a teenager. And about his anxiety, he writes, My anxiety feels like an atomic bomb exploding, but all contained in the small space of my chest. Snapshot from his life. A couple of months Uh, I'll be okay, but then I wake up one morning with my anxiety out of control, knowing that I'm going to be feeling like this for the next couple of months, and then I can't do anything about it because I don't have insurance to go to the mental health specialist. So I start to dissociate and feel numb until I yearn to feel something. That's when I start to burn myself with my lighter so I can feel something. Oh, Henry, buddy, I'm sending you, sending you some love, man. Um, I hope there's somebody that you can talk to. Um, Try Googling uh, low-fee therapy in the name of your town or city um, because there is help out there for us. I'm not saying it's easy to find, but there is help out there for us um, that's either very, very uh, low cost or um, free, especially um, for kids. This is filled out by Evie or Evie. Um, She's also young. She's also between 10 and 15. And about her depression, she writes, sitting in a dark train station and watching everyone else get on the train and being left behind. Oh my God, do I relate to that one. Thank you for that. Um, And this one was filled out by Honey Bunny. And she writes about her alcoholism and drug addiction. Having only one drink feels like watching the first 10 minutes of a movie, then walking out of the theater. Oh, that's a good one. And about her depression, she writes, the kind where everyone has boats, but you keep swallowing water. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by four PM.
0: You feel helpless.
1: I will be in hell by four fifteen.
0: Prison was not
1: easy.
0: Reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, This intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. I think I was 28 and that was the first time I ever experienced that and it was amazing.
1: I'm here with Tim F., who is a uh, doctor. Yes. And uh, he travels around the world um, bringing medical attention to... uh, People that that need it. You go to some really far-reaching places. You're sunburned right now, and you just got back from you just got back from Cambodia. Cambodia. Yes. And uh, what, what were you doing there?
0: Uh, well, the the basis and the the organization that I was working with. Basically, we go out for a couple weeks at a time and into some of the more remote areas of underserved countries and set up day clinics and try to get people to anticipate that we're coming so we can see as many as possible and then with whatever supplies we have which often are fairly meager um, we try to to help in whatever way possible do they always run out the supplies Uh, it really all depends it's kind of a crapshoot with what what we have available and what we're going to see so In as much as we can read up on the country and what their medical ailments might be, we try to anticipate, but it usually ends up being pretty far off.
1: How long? How long have you worked with? uh, Do you do you not want to mention the organization or? Um, I think only because of my.
0: You know the fact that it's been fairly recent. I would like to. They're a great organization, and maybe later on, if I realize that that I'm being silly, I'll probably
1: try okay. to give them as much. Whatever of a plug. gets you to open up Absolutely. more about it, because one of the things that we want to talk about is the mental toll on healthcare providers. Absolutely, and I want to try to go
0: into that as much as I can, at least from a firsthand and observational experience.
1: Okay. Did you want to withhold personal information? About no, no, stuff? not at all. Okay. I'm,
0: I'm more than happy to share, you know, probably ge- geographically some of the things I may okay. hold back, but I, I'd be happy to open up about my life. That's I, a big part of it. I would love to get into your sunburn.
1: <laughs> uh, I, I can't imagine what kind of trauma
0: that uh <laughs> well it's probably going to be more traumatic tomorrow there i would say about 50 percent was from cambodia and 50 percent was spending too much time at venice beach today
1: <laughs> nice yeah nice. <laughs> so, so we'll speaking see. Uh, speaking of the mentally
0: ill yes uh that <laughs> was another culture shock uh coming from a very different part of the country uh But thoroughly enjoyable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I hate that I just said the mentally ill because that's (laughs) because that's like saying, you know, somebody pointed this out to me one time. They said that would be like, you know, when you see a headline, it says, you know, help funded for the mentally ill. They said, you know, imagine if it said uh, help uh, funding uh, given to the women. Or, you know, the blacks.
0: Ah, yes. Well, I I will say as much as coming from a southern area, Mm -hmm. uh, that last part really resonated. So, yes, I can understand. You're a pretty young guy. How old are you? I'm 33. Okay. And uh, how long have you been an MD? Um, Well, let's see, five years now. Um, and, And to add to what you were saying in the beginning... I don't know why I feel the need to qualify this, but I am very much a novice in this. I've just started doing medical missions, and I'm very much a novice being a
1: doctor, so I just... Okay.
0: I'm coming from a, a youthful place. I don't know.
1: Um, well, I think oftentimes that that is uh Awesome. Uh, sometimes I've had young doctors that are just really invested and really mm. detail oriented and have a lot of passion and, and compassion, and uh, and therapists uh, likewise. So um, mm. and I think we've all gotten the cranky old doctor that shuffles you in yes. and shuffles you out. I had a great experience with a wonderful old guy today, mm-hmm. uh, who took about an hour, hour and a half, uh, an endo. Endocrinologist mm-hmm. and uh, super detailed, really patient, yeah. really thoughtful. And I was like, man, it—it's it, especially living in Los Angeles. It's so easy to get the let's get as many through here as we as we can.
0: Absolutely, um, I, I think part of the issue here, and, and this is at some point maybe I, I could touch on this too, but. Um, is that a lot of times the old doctors that people may come to issue with were probably at one time the young, enthusiastic doctors that really wanted to spend the time. And that kind of speaks towards the, the toll of that profession in general. And, I, mm. and when I say that, I don't mean doctors. I mean nurses. I mean... Paramedics. Yeah, exactly. Anyone that does that and sees enough suffering... And at the same time, sees enough of the same thing over and over. And I don't mean to certainly trivialize any, anyone's ailments ever. It's just that for one person to see things repeated over and over again, you start to lose some of the humanity.
1: The place where I see it in the surveys, the place where I see it having the worst consequences are the um, staff The attitude of the staff Mm -hmm. in psych ERs—that seems to be the most um, saddening because it's the people that need it the most, yes, and and they're met with uh, sometimes a lack of compassion, uh, uh, and and it's is often the, the. last house in the block for a lot of these people. Absolutely.
0: Um, honestly, that, and, and when I mentioned the, the point of bringing up, that exactly is why, that's why I contacted you in the beginning, because I've really been listening, I, w- I would say, for the last couple months now. I've started from, tried to start from the beginning of the catalog, and so often in the surveys, it's been so disheartening and upsetting to hear how many people have, whether it's, you know, further contributing towards their pathologies or just contributing towards a negative look at the medical profession because of an incident that occurred, whether it be a psych ER or regular ER or inpatient hospital. Um, and, and that's kind of why I wanted to come in and hopefully be able to talk a little bit about, I, I, we're
1: kind of fucked up too. <laughs> <laughs> I. I, I always have the hunch that people um, who are in the business of um, nursing, fixing—that mm-hmm. th- there's—I uh, always have this theory that one of their one of their parents was an addict or an alcoholic.
0: Oh yeah. Oh well, that that goes and that, chefs. Yes. Yes. Well, that's true. Well, at least in my case, personally, I can say that is definitely true. Um, I think. You know, there are certain stereotypes that are pervasive in medicine that, you know, psychiatrists are have psychological problems themselves. And there are there's always a certain stereotype that attributes to to each different category. But I think all in all, to do this kind of job that can be very, I don't want to say thankless, but almost in in certain ways when you don't get a good outcome or someone passes or someone despite your best efforts still curses you out. Um, there has to be something maybe something deeper inside you that's making you feel
1: a compulsion where for you, where does that come from? Have you always been somebody that wanted to serve?
0: Yes. Yes. I mean, there, there's kind of a a duality there, I guess, because at first, um, I was thinking about going into the military. Mm -hmm. Um, I was more interested in the law side of things, and I was looking into uh, military academies in high school. And um, it actually took my senior year of high school, I had a science teacher that was also a physician. And Mm -hmm. she had some incredible words for me, and it kind of changed my entire view on things. What did she say? Um, well, it was more of the things that she encouraged. Um, I remember we were doing dissections, and I thought that was the most disgusting thing that, that could be done at that time. I think it was a fetal pig, which still, still is pretty foul. I remember we had to do
1: one of those. Did, oh, it was, it was uh, unnerving.
0: Oh, good God. That little face and then just hacking away at things like we knew what we were doing.
1: Oh, I had to take a break and eat bacon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you're one of the good
1: ones. That's <laughs> why. <laughs>
0: Uh, She was standing over me and she said, you have the hands of a surgeon. And and that was a start. I I guess I spent a lot more time with it and um, she ended up being kind of one one in a string of many mentors that pushed me along towards a much, much longer career or much longer direction in that. I,
1: I love when I hear people recount a kind thing that somebody said to them, the change their life yeah especially from teachers absolutely. that is that is like my favorite thing to hear it's just reminds me that there's so much good in the world and that we do really make a difference in other people's lives absolutely and and, and how simple and, it can be to make a huge difference in someone else's life and i really have
0: tried since that time to let her know oh that's fantastic so there's that and my dad's an alcoholic so <laughs> <laughs> so bing
1: <laughs> you got both there um what where would you like to go where you want to talk about your childhood Do you want to talk about missions that you've been on um snapshots from your life as a doctor um
0: um you know that there's there's kind of a i i guess i mean i could go briefly into childhood and mm-hmm. how that ties in from a greater perspective with Mm -hmm. with the whole issues of of mental health. Because, I you know, there's my experiences that I know, and then there's the things that I've seen in medical school and in residency. And while I would caution that everything that I say is not indicative of everywhere across the country, I can say that I've at least had enough experience to know that some of these things are pretty pervasive. Okay, You know, in, in terms of childhood, from my own perspective, I've suffered with anxiety as long as I could remember. Um, That more so with bouts of depression in between. Um, How would the anxiety present itself? Well, I I didn't realize until learning and therapy uh, much later how early it presented, but in first grade, second grade, I would get chronic stomach aches. Mm. No other kind of symptoms of sickness, went to gastroenterologists and was worked up and never had anything wrong with me. But I would be out sick maybe 15, 20 days a year with stomach issues unspecified. And, you know, they would always come before school and somehow they would go away by the end of the day. And it wasn't until much later, again, that I realized, wow, this is, these are uh, very commonly in children non-specific physical manifestations like that can be anxiety poking its head through
1: do you think that the anxiety you experienced was the pressure of uh, having to get good grades or fitting in
0: um, it was more probably of the fitting in however the other this and this incoming perfectionism that was pretty pervasive throughout the rest of my life was I'm realizing now I think kind of set early uh, by my dad there was I I, other vivid memories from childhood are coming home with grades and you know I I think I did pretty well to end up where I I am and whether it be a B plus or an A minus there would be the inevitable question of well why you know why was it not an A or why wasn't it not an A plus what could you have done better you know what are you going to do differently next time and Um, other things like I was, you know, I was an overweight kid. I was, I was fat. I will, I will say I won't mince words there. Um, and it would always be something like if we'd be driving into a parking lot and I'd tell him to to pick a spot that was, I guess, close to the store where we're going to. And he'd say, well, you can afford to walk, so let's go a little bit farther. It, it, it's just constant needling and things like that. It set up a really shitty self-esteem for, for years to come. That and lots of bullying in middle school and um, things just kept going lower and lower. And I think the anxiety started to... Feed on itself of having things actually happen at school and then feeling more nervous that they were going to get worse. And then, um, then when I was eight, seven or eight, my parents split up, which in the long term was obviously it was a blessing, I think, because I spent the majority of time with my mom, who I don't have too much to say about because I think she is a wonderful person and she did everything that she could for me um but i still had contact with him and that and the combination of school kind of fed this anxiety that that just festered and festered and festered until probably when 16 i i went out to a party and i discovered alcohol for the first time and holy shit did that let did that let me let loose and it's pretty I, fantastic the first time yeah, you, yeah. You, do you consider yourself to be an alcoholic I have been in support groups, yes, and um, whether or not it means that I was looking for things that weren't there or it means that it's something that I haven't fully accepted yet, I, I can't be certain I know that there was a time where alcohol was directly causing problems in my life and I was abusing it. I was definitely guilty of abuse, and I still am using it and to be honest, I think. I'm in a position right now where I'm in a very low stress field, so that hasn't necessarily manifested itself again, but uh, my thoughts are that there is going to come a day where I ha- I'm going to have to stop.
1: What is low stress about going into the boonies of third world <laughs> countries and and uh, on a shoestring budget uh, trying to save people's lives?
0: Well, they are episodic, for one. It's not what I do every single day. And two, there is something reassuring with knowing what your limitations are and going in there and doing everything that you can. At the end of the day, that's, that's all you can do. And I can find solace in that. It's... Being in an environment where you have every single tool available to you and maybe not making the right choice, those are the things that stick with you and really um, let the inner demons play, so to speak.
1: I can't imagine. You know, I kick myself when I say something I regret on the podcast. I can't imagine when, as a doctor, you know, you look look back and go, oh, I should have, could have, would have. Can you give me an example of uh, anything?
0: Well, I can certainly say a crisis that was thankfully averted, and this is at the hallmark time of uh, problems within hospitals. Uh, July 1st, so everyone knows, is the day that the new interns, the freshly graduated medical students, start in the hospitals. So just be sure to be very adamant about what's going on and be sure to say everything twice. Um, I... I actually remember making a computer error. And you
1: were an intern at that time. I
0: was an intern. I was yeah. fresh, out the, uh, fresh out the box. Um, and to try to, I guess, to simplify, basically I was supposed to have someone on IV fluids. And they were supposed to be on 100 milliliters an hour, which is a very standard rate. Um, I, whether it was because of the end of the day or whatnot, I put in 1,000 um, which is, for someone who has issues with heart failure, a catastrophic event. Um, thankful- it, because it puts their blood pressure
1: through the roof? It or puts
0: why- their – fluid overloads them, basically. Mm-hmm. So if their heart's not pumping effectively, then all that fluid that you just gave them starts to back up, and the first mm-hmm. place that it backs up is into their lungs, so they can go into um, pulmonary failure, essentially, after that, and you just have mm. constant amounts of fluid in their lungs. And it's, if not caught early enough, a pretty, that much could be a death sentence. Mm. So, so the decimal is important important in, uh, in medicine. The smallest minutiae counts. <laughs> My goodness does it. Um, thankfully, someone who was more senior there, uh, you know, caught that and nothing, nothing came of it. But that is something that haunts me to this time. And I, I can certainly.
1: You can't forgive yourself for that?
0: I can't forgive myself for a lot of things. So that, that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Well, give me a, give me a list. Let's, uh, let's <laughs> lay
1: the shame out on the table.
0: Well, I think. I think most of them are alcohol related, so a lot of them are uh, secondhand reports because uh, you were blacked out. Because I was blacked out. Yeah. Yes, um, these were during my marriage. These were, which is no longer okay. Yes, um, these were during times in medical school, times in college, where um, certainly nothing egregious ever came of it, but I certainly felt like a horrible person for. Um, Something, something that stands out, I remember I was in, in college, I was dating a girl, and probably were together about a year and a half. Um, so we had passed the point where we had both said, you know, I love you. And I remember drinking, and it was a birthday party, and I was next to my friend and his girlfriend, and I can just remember enough to say, do you guys love each other? Because I'm not sure about mine. And she was sitting right next to me. Wow. Wow. So if by any chance anyone knows or is listening, I am very sorry about that.
1: Well, if it, if it makes you feel any better, um, you know, when I said wow, my list of wows is uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, <laughs> The one that just popped into my mind was um, when I was in college i can't, i don 't remember why but i was i was um, uh, I lived in a fraternity house for for two years and I was leaving the fraternity house and I had an orange in my hand. And uh, I was about to eat it, and somebody was in the second-story uh, window saying something or other. And I just had a couple of beers, and so I was just feeling that, you know, that energy. When you're depressed most of the time, and all of a sudden yeah. you feel euphoria. Absolutely. I was just feeling completely pumped up, and so I wheeled around and hurled this orange that went through the window and and the sh- and at this guy, and a glass cut his face. Oh God! And Uh, it it was just like, why did I do that? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Because I was just like, I just wanted to take on the world. I wanted, I I, I don't, I don't have words for why I did that. Absolutely. And have you been able to forgive yourself for that? Oh, fuck. Yeah. (laughs) Five minutes after I did it, but there's a lot of other things I did when I was drunk that, uh, um, you know, cheated on girlfriends. Yeah. Um, uh, Belittled people with uh, with jokes that I thought were funny, mm-hmm. and they, and people might have laughed, but there was a barb to it that yeah. that I couldn't see at the time uh, had an underlying hostility yeah. to it, and uh, I made a lot of jokes at people's expenses uh, a- expense in, for a lot of years yeah. and not realizing it, and yeah. and that I I cringe about. It-
0: it wasn't the only thing, but alcohol definitely made me realize, in many ways, what a self-centered asshole I was. In certain where I thought, I, I suppose I thought that I was completely justified. Um, I, if, if I may, another example. One of the, I guess, best or potentially worst. <laughs> 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 a dramatic break. <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. Uh, was is is the transition from uh, medical school to residency, and they call that Match Day, and all this—it's this big pomp and circumstance uh, ceremony where people have been applying to their residency, their specialty programs a- after finishing medical school, and. On this one day in March, everyone gathers together in this big hall and you're all handed an envelope. You oh have, my god. You have no idea where you're going. If you applied or if you ranked, say, on your list, which is, could be however, however many you choose. One through fifteen, let's say you could be going anywhere fifteen places in the country potentially.
1: Holy shit! So
0: you're you you, this uncertainty for the next three to five years, you're just sitting there with this envelope, and then at one magical moment, you all open this envelope, and it tells you either you're going to the place you really wanted to, or well, it sucks. You're going to Wyoming. Sorry, Wyoming. Um, so point of all this is I did not get anywhere near what my first choice was. And for what I realized myself to be an egotistical person, I was crushed. And my family, I had people come in from out of town, people I hadn't seen in a long time. I had my mom and girlfriend at the time go through this whole, they, they made reservations at this night's nice restaurant. There was a, a party, a celebratory party back at, at you know the house I grew up in. And I got that letter and I turned to them. I said, we're leaving and got in the car and I went back to the house and I drank myself until I was unconscious for the next 24 hours. Um, so I killed every good thing
1: that they had set up for me. It's it's amazing how low self-esteem at the center of it can have egotism wrapped up in it, mm-hmm. isn't
0: it? Absolutely. I you know because I strive so hard to try to be that best student, that 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 perfect specimen that I always wanted to be, which is unattainable for anyone that that's listening. Um I, any kind of failure would send me into a tailspin and that is something that i can speak on i guess in a little bit that is pretty symptomatic amongst people in the medical profession especially doctors um that and that's you know that that, that would be something i don't know if I don't. I, I keep jump, jumping in and out of chronology. I feel like oh, so. I don't. We, we
1: do that. We do, we do that here. That's that, that's totally fine. It's very rarely uh, is somebody's story uh, organically uh, unfolded chronologically. Okay. Okay.
0: It, it made me think of. I was just listening to a, another one of, uh, of the podcasts the other day, and there was. Know, he was Asian. I can't remember if he was Taiwanese, but he Michael, was H- Michael H. Yes. Yeah. So much of what he said and his experiences growing up resonated with me 100% to the point where I said, well, I hope that I don't end up sounding completely the same and boring everyone to tears, but um, I'll try to make it as individualistic as, as I can.
1: I I think you've done that, and you're not saying that Michael's interview was was boring. You just no, no. I'm saying that if I repeat, I don't want to
0: be because he was fascinating, and and he was actually that was another one that personally for me was incredibly
1: helpful. Yeah, he was very honest.
0: He was, and the
1: thing is that for those of you that haven't listened to that episode, uh, Michael is somebody who got his training as a therapist, and then. Uh, walked away from it because he decided he wanted to pursue music and he had a relationship with a um his relationship with his mom uh she was had no boundaries and he being a people pleaser um really struggles to enforce boundaries with his uh with his mom um but did you did you have that issue with your mom with the boundaries or is that with your dad
0: there are there are two kind of issues in there and and this is you know this is another aside but i something i learned from the podcast which mm-hmm. i was a term i was not familiar with actually before was uh emotional incest mm-hmm. an entirely creepy term but good god is it accurate
1: it is accurate
0: um, another memory I can remember rewinding before I kind of lost contact with my father is uh, being nine or ten. And after my parents split up, I guess my dad thought it was a good idea to date my best friend's mom. So for years, they were probably two or three years. They were a pseudo family, and they were the youngest kid was calling him dad, and it was... Uh, an entirely fucked up situation to have a mom in complete despair over this and see uh, a father overjoyed with my best friend's mom. But needless to say, um, they broke up, and at 10, I'm sitting there on a couch with my dad while he's crying on my shoulder and he's asking my advice. And that that kind of summed
1: up a lot of our relationship. Wow. Yeah, that is textbook emotional incest i've never felt any
0: kind of real fatherly (sighs) output from him um i I don't know a better better way to say that he sounds like a really scared guy he certainly was and he screwed up a lot of his life because of not putting things in check and not getting the help that i think he needed i will say and I, i don't I'm not trying to validate or vouch for some of his behaviors, but I do know that one of the psychiatrists that he had seen for a long time was busted for selling drugs to other patients or to other providers that didn't necessarily need them. So if you're getting mental health from that source, I can't imagine that um, it's going to go down a good road.
1: Yeah. And and if his alcoholism was untreated, I mean, you can't even when people email me and say, you know, I'm drinking too much and I've got anxiety about this and this relationship with this person the for me, it all starts with dealing with your addiction. Absolutely. I don't believe uh, I believe that if an addiction is just uh, on the loose. You are just swimming upstream with mm-hmm. every other every other issue, and so it sounds like that might have been the 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 case with your with your dad, absolutely, yeah.
0: And you know, and and myself, which I can you know expand upon a little in a little bit too. Okay. Uh, one of the things that I learned in support groups was um, alcoholism, drug abuse are are not necessarily the main problem; they're symptomatic of something deeper. They're just the manifestation. Yeah. of it. Fear, resentment, yes. anger, yes, exactly. low
1: self-esteem. and it's
0: The list goes on and on. So much easier to sublimate all those things by so much easier. indulging in something that ultimately makes you more destructive. Yeah. Um, so yes, that's lesson mm-hmm. well learned, I suppose. Um, anyway, I, I, I feel like this is kind of intertwining into how I would say the growing issues with my dad impacted my own issues, Mm -hmm. Um, especially come medical school, things started happening. And this is when his alcoholism started to become more apparent. Um, He was someone that I was never able to rely on anyway. I mean, when he he would call, I would talk to him. But if I ever tried to call him, he would never pick up. He'd never return calls. So I never knew where he was. And I never really knew how to get a hold of him the few times I did need him uh but there there was a greater frequency and there were there was one one weekend i remember where i kept calling and and calling and I, and i just i couldn't i couldn't get him um so i waited i just drove to his apartment and waited outside for hours and hours and i i i kept going up and buzzing the door and buzzing the door and no no one would come and then i don't remember how long it was uh, before, finally, I, I saw him walk up to the door, and he was he was stooped over. his His face was flushed. He was shivering, and and he was you know speaking in this this kind of tremulous tone. And I, I certainly wasn't that that far advanced in, in medical school, but there's it's a four year process, mm-hmm. and in your third and fourth year, you start doing the actual in hospital stuff. So I was just starting there, so I was like I think it, it looked very much like alcohol withdrawal. So that that was kind of my first slap you in the face type of experience that there is a much larger problem here that I didn't realize was going on. Oh, you didn't, you didn't know he was at an that point. Until at that then. point, I hadn't realized where all these absences and mm. not calling back and. And even now, honestly, as I'm talking to you, some things are are, are locking into place Mm -hmm. that that are maybe did not see before. But I actually, fortunately, had someone that I I really looked up to as a doctor that I was working with at that time. So I, I was very honest with him about my situation, and I could not get my dad to go to a hospital he refused so the doctor gave me a, a medication that we use to detox mm-hmm. um, alcohol alcoholics that are going into withdrawal and i sat for 72 hours in my dad's apartment with him and fed him medication and and i had to take i took time off from school and just sat with him until finally he was sober enough and in uh, sound mind and body that I kind of coerced him into the hospital. And we had a long talk after that, and everything, I guess, seemed lovelier. Um, How
1: long did that last?
0: Oh, goodness. Maybe, maybe weeks. Th- weeks. Okay. Maybe, I weeks, say, yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, if it, the person getting sober has to want it like yeah. uh, somebody drowning wants a, a, a life preserver. Yeah um and, and i will
0: tell you that till this time he still has never admitted the word he still has never mi- admitted the term that that he is an alcoholic yeah. um so there obviously still is drinking and we don't we don't really have contact
1: would it have been impossible for you to say um oh dad you're you know you're you're going through the dt's um uh would you like help? And if you said no, say okay. Well, you're this is going to be miserable. But you know, just know if 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 you want some help, uh, you feel free to give me a ring. But uh, I'm going to let you shake and flop around on your, on your own and hit your bottom. The the was, old, that, was that inconceivable
0: for you to? It was, and and that was because it was so soon. And the other thing that I knew with some drugs, you, you can you can detox completely cold turkey, and it is oh, it is just awful. I mean, heroin um medi- heroin especially is absolutely miserable but you will not die from right. detoxing from heroin you from things like Xanax or alcohol you absolutely can die detoxing without medication and i was not i was not willing to have that prospect of
1: of him dying and me knowing that 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 was a a viable and that's totally totally understandable i mean that had to have been terrifying to it- to you
0: yeah it it was it was miserable it was so much so much to 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 process and even to this day
1: it it's it sucks to talk about i i think that's the thing that is so difficult about codependence because part of the surrender is that you have to be willing to say well that person might die. Yeah. But that it is not my job to try to make them live a life yeah. that will keep them alive if they don't want to. I will tell
0: you I am there now. Are you? Yeah. Um I've I've we went through a period of not talking for 2 years and then we probably went through a period of 6 months um where you know, we, we talked and I started to get involved and, you know, there were periodic episodes. This is before that when we were still talking of paying bills or I would go out and buy groceries for him mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And there was a slow rebuilding of the bridges. And then I remember another another case where, you know, he, he had been – he certainly wasn't changing. And I know that that will never happen. But it was at least amicable – and he was remorseful about certain things. Um, but I do remember a time where I don't know what he thought he was doing for me by trying to set up a meeting with someone he met in a bar, you know, that that might be related to my career. And I was doing something else. So I, I missed that opportunity. And he called in a rage and was yelling and screaming at me, you know, how could you do that? How could you make me look like that? And I I laughed and I hung up on him and that was the last time we've talked and for you where it stands right now. And this is, these are the things that that that's,
1: I I don't know. I mean, I'm sorry that, that, that happened, but um, I mean, that's, uh, that's some serious boundary setting, man. You you should uh, really be proud of yourself uh, because it's like the, the, the better the boundary, the more painful it is to set. <laughs> yeah. For me, yeah. at least. yeah, I hate disappointing people. I hate people yeah. being upset with me. Absolutely. It, it makes my stomach churn.
0: Absolutely. I, I identify with that 100%. So now as it stands, I'm just waiting to get the phone call that says that someone found him. And that, that's, that's, that's it. That's the end.
1: Look, you're, you're getting yeah.
0: emotional. What's, yeah. what's coming I up? Yeah, I mean, because that's, that's very real, and it's it's going to happen soon. I mean, he was he was really sick and ill-looking, you know, and he was eating one meal a day, and uh, it was his job, so to speak. He's on 100% disability, which is another gross, gross abuse of the system. Um, but he was tending bar as, as a side job at, at a VA. Wow. Um, so it's, it's just this whole perverse thing that, um, you know, of course I, and not to, I'm certainly not jumping into anything, but since I have a couple other things I could say, I could tell you one of the fears that I I still have is that there's going to be some lingering part of me that's going to say, well, maybe I should have tried to say something else
1: in the end. You know, I have that. I go over that same thought probably on a weekly basis about my relationship with with my mom, mm-hmm. about having cut contact with her, Absolutely. and that she will die, and then suddenly I will realize, oh, I should have done this. Yeah. And then I'll beat myself up. Yeah. But it, I, I can tell you, at least for me, uh, the longer I have distance from her and that kind of toxicity, um, the the less i think about it and the more at peace my mind um gets so i'm working with it yeah, yeah it's, but it's hard it's hard having a sick parent yeah especially when we ourselves are sick mm. you know emotionally mentally it's it's hard and i'm sure it's hard
0: for them absolutely and i can't imagine and and he was the he was very close-lipped about everything what was going on in his life? How he was feeling, and and even about his upbringing. You know, I, I between the two sets of grandparents, I would say I wasn't particularly close with his, but there was nothing overt in terms of personality that I ever mm-hmm. saw. So I don't know. I have no way of knowing what he grew up with, other than I know we are, you know, we are an Irish family that grew up with alcoholism. In many generations, mm-hmm. um, and and you know, I'm sure that was part of it, but I don't know where the anxiety and 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 all of that came from. And I'll I know now that I'll never know. I'm um, only just trying to identify these things in myself, which are
1: definitely there. I just got back but into, you're, but you're seeking, and that's what's so important. There's nothing more important than than being a seeker.
0: Absolutely. I want to again, I 100% agree. I'm probably going to beat that phrase to death. But it's all good. um, You know, I just got back into therapy recently and uh, was going through originally, it was going to do some anticipatory work just to try to Mm -hmm. keep myself on my game. Uh, But there actually in the event of your dad.
1: That Passing. and
0: and just transitions in life. I, mm-hmm. I'm still working through different careers and and I'm looking into new jobs. So still in the medical field. Oh yeah, okay. absolutely. Still. As what is your? Do you have a specialty? No, that's that's another. And without probably giving too much out, but I, I'm a general practice right okay. now. And the thing is, um, general practitioners in this country really—that's just means technically you would have been a general practice doctor right out of medical school. Um, but everyone does a residency now. You really can't get work as a general practitioner in this country. Um, I actually started out as a surgeon, mm-hmm. and I found that I just the career wasn't for me. It, it wasn't where my passion was. I worked with great people, and I found a great mentor there who I still adore and who still is very dear to me and helps a great deal, but um, knew that it wasn't for me.
1: Is it true that surgeons are the most arrogant of the doctors?
0: I would say, I yeah, I, I think so. I think that, yeah, anything within that—general surgeons, neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons. Yeah, uh, when you, when you have I, all doctors, more or less have that, you know, governance, life, death, and whatnot, and and can intercede to uh, bring someone back from the brink, so to speak. But surgeons are the only ones that can do it in seconds to minutes. So I think that they've probably earned that, not to say that they should be that way, but it's come from that, you know, direct intercession. And, that.
1: You, and you probably have to have a big ego to not be flustered when you're in that right. situation.
0: Right. And that was also something that did not suit me well. I, I like taking time and I like, Getting to know people and having to see an assembly line of people in the morning and press on their bellies and, you know, ask, did you shit overnight is not was not necessarily fostering what I thought might have been my best talents.
1: I'd kind of like to see uh, a movie, The Codependent Surgeon. (laughs) (laughs) If I make this incision. Will everybody still like me? I'm sure.
0: Sh- I'm sure it would have been a hit at the cans. <laughs> at the cans, cans.
1: Good lord, how uncultured oh, I am. Of oh, the uh, the movie thing, yeah. Uh, I've heard it pronounced a couple of different ways. A con, I think, is it is is. Oh well, I, yeah, yeah. I know it's not you're, cans. You're, I, used yeah, to yeah. Pro- I used to pronounce it. I used to pronounce it cans too. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Well, you're you're talking about a, an original East yeah. Coast guy that probably had some pronunciation uh, issues himself, but. nevertheless so
1: what uh what else would you like to talk about uh have we have we um is there more of the personal stuff uh you want to talk about before we talk about the uh the emotional toll of i uh, think i think you know we could certainly talk about
0: the the emotional toll and um if i could go back to one of the original points and and just a Mm -hmm addressing. And, and when I say these things, I'm not trying to cover for I'm not trying to absolve any of the occurrences or make it seem like they were reasonable for happening. Because again, I am could not be more sorry that they ever happened to anyone. Um, but there are certain things that, that I can identify um, that I want, you know, from two different categories, one from the training and, and two from just the humanity issue in itself um the, on the training side of things you know doctors or the hard clinical people and i'm talking about excluding psychiatry psychology mm-hmm. social work and and everything of the like you know it's very well described what things like depression anxiety are and you know that there are hard treatments for it that you you have you're dealing with serotonin you're you're dealing with trying to regulate those levels and and try to bring these things back up but uh, I think anyone that has ever suffered through either one of those can say that that really means next to nothing to them and that Coming from a place of utter despair and blackness, where you don't think or you know that no one else knows what you know, that that someone coming to you and handing you a pill, is is probably not gonna make you feel any more at ease, um, and and I don't I I can't I've certainly not vilify the medical system for not teaching it. I don't know exactly how to teach it. You know, other, th- other than maybe having people that are actually experiencing it and talking and saying, this is what depression is for me. Some of these things I'm formulating in my head as we go, so excuse me if they don't sound coherent. But a lot of at least what I've experienced in myself and what I think I've seen in other people in the medical profession is there, there's kind of a, a duality going on during the day. Um, when you see that repetition of sickness and suffering and illness, um, there's always going to be innate psychological barriers that you use to essentially dehumanize. Just, to, sur- just to, to survive. Get, yeah, to just get to get through day. the day. Yeah. And the the combination there is there is a sense of urgency in the teaching of medicine that Aside from the patient's health, teaching supersedes pretty much anything else. So anything that becomes a teaching moment, you all rush in there and you, you, you try to learn because there is nothing more important in, in medicine and medical, you know, the, the medical education system than being the best. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not something obviously that's ever going to be overtly said mm-hmm. but it's it's said in s- so many ways it, it it's you know ridiculous from from class rank to posting you know the exam grades up on the wall so you know even though they're they're coded with different numbers you know you mm-hmm. you can know what everyone else is doing um and that that fosters this this kind of ridiculous uh high school like mentality where people undercut each other and and again I'm not saying that this is ha- happening everywhere but it's it's happening enough.
1: Wouldn't it be good if they gave grades uh, based on compassion? Wouldn't that be nice? <sighs>
0: they're they're trending towards emphasizing that more and they're actually trending towards I think picking people for medical school that might be more uh, compassion oriented or, or through service or then science oriented. And then there's going to be two schools of thought that say, well, yeah, you're getting a doctor that that's listening to you and, you know, mm-hmm. really empathizing, but does he know what the hell to do sure. afterwards? Also,
1: also a great point. Yeah, my... <laughs> Uh, one of my roommates in college was brilliant. I mean, this guy didn't have to study. He mm-hmm. took all of his classes were AP, and he got four point oh yeah. every. And thank God he went into research because yeah. he was <laughs> the most socially inept person that that uh, one of the most socially inept people I've yes. ever I've ever met. And arrogant,
0: yes. Yes, we also have pathology for for those people. You know, you we, you can't really piss off dead tissue. It's, it's really hard, really hard. Um, but but even going back to the point that just examples of things where students would go to the library to take books out, not so so much that they could study, but so other people couldn't have them. What <laughs> or. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god I mean, these, these are people these are gradu- people graduating college and you know in in their mid twenties and you know they're starting to be fully functioning adults
1: and they're you know then
0: they're they're acting at this
1: level so does where does that game continue then once they're on staff somewhere are they still playing those games to get a- ahead Is there a pecking order in the hospital that you're climbing? In, in, as a resident, yes,
0: there's always going to be, you know, comparing yourself versus other people, cause. But let's say you're board certified. It, oh, board certi- certified, it really all depends. If you're, you decide to go into your own practice, then, you know, then you, you may have kind of set the standard there. And if you're comfortable where you are and you, you want to set up your own little practice and, and tailor things to yourself, then, then there might actually be a cap. Okay. Um, if you've been for, you know, Seven to eight years, a self-centered asshole. Though it's maybe not going to change by that point. So it, it's hard to say when when that precedent is set and if there's any kind of reversal. If you stay in an academic environment, I mean, I suppose the sky's the limit, depending on how high you want to climb and how mm-hmm. much you na- you want your name to be known.
1: Mm-hmm. Did I cut you off? Was oh, I, I'm.
0: Oh, you know what? And I was, I guess I was circling back to that, that whole duality thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And and really, so the the teaching, yeah, the teaching Teaching moments is, is one of those big things. And and that's, uh, that's something that that really, I think, I like to think that they're starting to address. I don't know. I know that there were talks about empathy and compassion and trying to really emphasize. Um, But in terms of it all comes down to these things. Volume, how many people each doctor is seeing, workload, um, you know, how many hours are they there? How many hours past what most people are working? Are, are they going beyond? And how much is that mental toll taking?
1: And how many of your patients are, you know, script hunting? Yeah. You know, they're addicts that are, that yep. are uh, you know, how many are hypochondriacs Absolutely. that are draining you? I, I can't imagine that when you've got a day full of uh, high maintenance yeah people what that's got to be like at the end of the day absolutely. i would going into robot mode it has to save you on a day like that absolutely
0: and and that is that it's when things come in that's when that perfect storm hits when someone who really really just needs kind words and you know a a a touch that soothes and not causes any kind of discomfort to to come through and that person, you know, who may have been there yesterday is not there today. So, so many of these situations are could be based on so many things. You know, mm-hmm. the, the individual that comes into the ER after a sexual assault may be being seen by a physician or a nurse who had worked 18 hours yesterday and then went home and had a horrible... Uh, fight with their spouse, or and maybe had a patient die the previous mm-hmm. day, and they're coming in with this horrific baggage. And, um, and another one gets gets the, the brunt of that. And again, I'm not it's not explaining, it's not apologizing for it's it's just these are the things that can happen. And, and I guess the only message that I could try to convey from that is, you know, you have these bad experiences, but please don't Please don't let it color everything and don't give up on the medical profession as a whole. I know that there are some really fantastic, fantastic, wonderful people out there who supersede my my levels of compassion and empathy and, and somehow get up every day and are able to put, you know, even if it's not their home persona, a persona on where they just know how to make people mm-hmm. feel heard and 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 welcome
1: my my uh best friend is is one of those people he's uh mm-hmm. mike sabahar he was a guest on the on the program and mm-hmm. he's an interventional pain specialist
0: oh okay and he is
1: and so you imagine he's all day long he's dealing with people who are in chronic sometimes severe pain a lot of ed- elderly patients mm-hmm. and he's a um just a really sup- um patient mm-hmm. um compassionate mm-hmm. guy um but codependent yeah alcoholic father yeah. um but yeah. but yeah. you know he's done he's done <laughs> he's done work on himself to yeah. get to, to to get to that place but yeah. Uh, yeah he's one of the definitely one of the g- good ones I, i've met a ton of doctors that are I experienced a ton of doctors that were uh, just really great and patient and absolutely uh, and kind.
0: Oh, absolutely! They're they're definitely out there, and I've I've had a string of amazing mentors myself, and I, I know that this crisscrosses back into my other point. But I think with and, and again, where a lot of people that go into the medical profession have some kind of I think emotional or psychological. Mm-hmm. Not going to say pathology, but wanting, I, I think that. Um, you know we, we do we do find it we we look for the suffering and sometimes it just kind of overtakes us you know mm-hmm. we we realize we don't we're not an infinite well of compassion and that that sometimes that that well runs dry for a bit and that's when the these type of unfortunate uh, occurrences yeah, happen
1: the, i hear therapists talk about having to charge their batteries you know having yes. to um just unplug from from everything yes. and uh, you know make sure that their their hours aren't too much yeah. setting boundaries with Absolutely. with patients etc um, etc cetera, et cetera. Um, was there another point that you wanted to uh, finish or make
0: yeah um, yeah if 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 at all uh, possible um just the the other side is just the humanity uh, of these medical professionals as well is that think about you know when you do especially in residency, where it's very common to do you know maybe eighteen hour days or they do overnight shifts too, so you might end up working thirty hours in a row Jesus um, <laughs> you know it 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 really all depends there, but the point being is you may have to be back at the hospital at four thirty five thirty the next day, so coping mechanisms become a big thing and and that this is where the frailties of us as, as humans come in the same as anywhere else, is that, yeah, it would be fantastic to go home and do a five-mile run and decompress and meditate and, you know, do things that really are going to be healthy, healthy to to, to get you through this. But the reality of it is the way you feel, the exhaustion, the toll... It's so much easier to reach for a bottle or reach for a sleeping pill, um, and that's more often than not what happens. Do um, you
1: think there's a fair amount of addiction in, oh, in absolutely. the medical community? Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
0: I, I mean, that's been fairly well proven. There's a fairly high
1: – Oh, yeah. I, I was just going to say that. That reminded me of um, – We'll finish your thought, and then no, no, I'll no, share no. share the anecdote with you.
0: Uh, okay, uh, no, all all I was saying is that um, there there certainly is a lot of studies to show that 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 rates of suicide, accidental overdose, there are they're fairly significant. We even had um, one from our program, someone that that. Um, was found, uh, she was already graduated, but she was, she was working as an active physician and just one morning didn't show up and they, they found her, um, overdose on sleeping pills. And it was not intentional, but mm. I think that it probably, you can only speculate here that. And maybe was
1: she stealing them from the hospital or no? She, she
0: likely had her own prescription, but you maybe can, had developed a tolerance to the extent yeah. that was taking, you know, more than needed mm. at the time just to try to get some kind of effect.
1: Uh, one of the stories that uh, uh I heard, and i won't say which doctor I heard it from because I don't want to uh incriminate mm-hmm. um, one of his peers was a uh, anesthesiologist who apparently had uh, developed an addiction to a really really strong um painkiller, and what he would do is when he was when he would be doing a patient he would um be injecting himself you know i guess you have your own little table your yeah. own oh yeah. table. so he would be behind there mm-hmm. and he'd be giving the patient something and then he'd be giving himself something he got them mixed up and the thing that he was supposed to give the patient is the thing that paralyzes them mm-hmm. and he gave it to himself mm-hmm. and so they were like telling him you, you know uh, you know do this do that and he's not moving at all and and your your mind is completely yep. alert while yep. you're paralyzed, yep. and he just knew he was fucked at that oh, moment that the the, the, oh, jig, yeah. the jig was up.
0: I i have actually, yeah, I've heard a very similar story. And there's, you know, there's been stories of, you know, residents that have been found in on-call rooms, unconscious or dead, overdosed. And, and I mean, it's, I guess my whole point for saying these things is that just to realize that we're... Experiencing the same damn frailties as everyone else, and that that kind of speaks volumes about we try to act mm. in the ways that, that are befitting, and you know, of what Hippocrates oh so long ago ha- had said about the conduct of, of a physician. Um, but as part of human nature, we're, we're, excuse me, put it bluntly, we're still gonna fuck up.
1: Yeah. Uh, The episode we did with a policeman, Andy, uh, is a good one, too, about uh, he calls it um, cumulative uh, PTSD. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it just begins. You got to find a way to, you know, to recharge your battery. Right. So that when you're talking with somebody who is on edge. Yeah. Um, you can diffuse this situation, Yeah. Uh, even though you may not be feeling a tremendous amount of patience yeah. in your body at that at that moment. Yeah. Uh, what else would you like to uh, to to share?
0: Well, I I, I mean, I could certainly I, I can think of things that that still haunt me, and I can think of things about my alcoholism and and I don't know if that that would no, be No, you
1: know I feel like we, like we've we, we've touched on that. You know what I'd like to hear yeah. is a couple of sh- snapshots uh that were poignant either painful or beautiful or life affirming of you doing work out in the field in oh. some of these um Sure. out of the way sure. places.
0: Absolutely. Um, overwhelming some of the the most amazing experiences I think Are with children and uh, a lot of it is because in the areas that we go to uh, they're often areas that have been untouched in the sense that there's never been a physician in the area there's never been any concept of medicine other than what might be uh, local practices or um, you know local traditional medicine um, which most of the time we, we really know nothing about going in so there's there's not much we can say about that and you know, to, to be able to talk with child and mom and, and just give the most basic advice on things to look out for or to talk about things like hygiene, to talk about, you know, brushing your teeth, to to be able to teach them how to make clean water, um, to to start – just to examine and to touch and to – try to give reassurance that, you know, to the mom that your child is completely normal or developing or there there are, you know, maybe a couple things that we could address. And I could say as a comparison, and I don't want to make any kind of broad sweeping generalizations, but the level of appreciation, the gratitude um, is, is something that I, I certainly don't see on a regular basis when I'm more in a, in a paid position. Uh, you know, most of the, the work that I do abroad is, is volunteer. Um, and, but that honestly is something that more recharges my batteries than things that I would do clinically here. Um, there, there just, there is something, you know, one about experiencing a new culture and, and, uh, knowing those nuances and, and broadening yourself as a person. And then there is the gratitude that you you get from each individual. And children are definitely the, the best for that. And you
1: can't beat a kid's smile. Absolutely. You know? and, and no matter what documentary I'm watching, when people walk into that untouched village, yeah. the kids are always the same. They Absolutely. just swarm yes. around it and they're just Giddy and yes. they're laughing and yes. they're playful, and it's just uh, it, it it just makes you smile.
0: A, a lesson learned on these trips was apparently the hokey pokey is universal. I did is not know. Really? Yes. Or or at least you can get a bunch of funny looking white people to do a dance, and you yeah. you'll follow along. Oh, that's the, awesome. a, in as much as that. Yes. Um, so so those are. I think being able to affirm things that you you take so naturally mm-hmm. for granted is such a big part of it and I would, you know, I would also take this opportunity to compel anyone that is in the medical profession that's listening that that these are absolutely great opportunities if you do find yourself burning out or if you mm-hmm. are feeling like, you know, the candle's lit at both ends and it's only a matter of time before something happens or you leave or mm-hmm. Uh, give it a try, seriously. Give it a try. Every time I do it, I come back feeling m- like more, more of a whole person. Uh, I, I would say what a great I, way to describe it. That's you know, that's the best way that that I can. And I think, I think that there is. I can't believe that I do anything selfless. I don't know whether it's a self-esteem thing or anything like that. But I feel like me doing this is still a selfish act because
1: I'm getting enjoyment from you're, it you're filling the spiritual uh part yes of yourself that, that's the yeah that is the i suppose the irony of spirituality yes. is seeking it is the end is selfish yes but the means is selfless
0: yes very very well put uh, i i started again going into this whole seeking thing i've kind of been studier of buddhism for a while now I've been getting back into it and meditation and the sort and, and some of the readings that I've been doing, have been addressing this directly that, that the best way to get fulfilled is mm-hmm. through through action to others. And that is kind of what I was saying, probably in a better way of me being selfish by wanting to yeah. to help others
1: so that that it's is the best kind of selfish you can ever. You can ever do. And I think spirituality, the word spirituality always throws a lot of people off. But mm-hmm. the thing that you are doing to me um, by going out and do volunteering to do that, that is to me, that is spirituality. And mm-hmm. it's, that is a, the greatest example of, of mm-hmm. something spiritual. Mm-hmm. And you can tell. I mean, your face is lit up. Aside from the sunburn, you're, you know, uh, you can tell that, you, that you're uh, on a high coming, yeah. coming back yeah. from this thing. You you just uh, yeah. have a um, an energy about you that is, uh, you don't seem downtrodden. Yeah. You, you seem very vital yeah. and energized.
0: Well, as someone that really, really has a hard time taking a compliment, I will say thank you.
1: You're quite welcome. Okay. Anything else you'd like to share?
0: Um, well, I... I thinking of any other I think the the other side of the population just to just to complete that that mm. whole thought is uh, the the geriatric population is something that is simply amazing uh, going into other countries and seeing how uh, the dichotomy of how our aging population is in this country um, not often but not completely often, overweight, definitely with multiple, multiple medical issues. And, you know, I'm someone now that that for most of the time I see elderly patients and I would say, you know, an average of six medications. And that's much, you know, there there are some patients I don't see that upwards of 20. Oh, my God. And these are people that could be in their 60s and 70s. So you go to another country and to find you know, people in their 70s that not only are they on no medications, but they have never seen a doctor. And they've been getting around that way for, for the entire time. And, you know, one can say whether it speaks to pure lifestyle, a, a, a lifestyle of necessity over a lifestyle of choice. I mean, that, that certainly mm-hmm. can be argued, or, or, you know, the fact that they just didn't have a doctor that was very apt to put them on many different medications but they've been getting along and and you know mm-hmm. you can talk to them and give them some very basic advice and even you know giving them tylenol for for some arthritis or some joint pain which you know for the most part here you would probably get that tylenol thrown back in your face mm-hmm. um and and to get again such a such a, a a gratitude, a, a, a warmth in return, and there's just nothing like it. There's nothing like that. And I could tell you, even as someone who's still battling issues with substances, mm. it beats the hot hell out of any substance that that, that you can get out it's there. It's the
1: best natural high. Spirituality Absolutely. is the best natural high. Absolutely. No side effects. Uh,
0: no. No. Yeah. Except wanting to do it more. And that's, yeah. that's really- That's a good one. Yeah. That's not a problem right there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, should we do some fears and loves? Absolutely. Where where would? You, where, let's start I, with a couple of fears. One of the big ones, and probably one of the the biz- biggest hesitances I had with even mm-hmm. coming was, and I still feel this way, uh, that no one truly cares what I have to say. Um, I have a very big internal critic, and most of the time I don't talk, and there are very few people that I can talk to. Freely about what's going in my head because I've only realized recently how bad it is. But it's usually either people are not going to care or people are just not going to respond at
1: all. It's a tyrant. Yeah. It is a tyrant. It it is uh, unceasing. Mm -hmm. It is compassionless. Mm -hmm. It's irrational. Yeah. Uh, And it never needs sleep. Yes.
0: Yes. Um, there was a a book that I've been reading recently, and is is it okay to bring up books or endorse? Oh, oh, absolutely. Okay, and and I'm gonna. I feel so bad because the author is he's a he's a news anchor. It's called Ten Percent Happier, mm-hmm. um, and. Basically, the the whole, it, it's kind of a veiled discussion about Buddhism, but it goes through this, the life of this news anchor that went through his own hell with substance abuse and mm-hmm. on air issues and finally started doing his own seeking, which led him more down some, some Buddhist roads. And he got into meditation and a lot of what was in there resonated and even kind of reaffirmed getting back into meditation, which I've been doing. And that is, I, I, I think, honestly, everyone can benefit from it in in some way. Uh, it is one of the best ways to at least temporarily quiet that, that internal voice, that critic. If you mm-hmm. constantly flood it with breathing in and breathing out and acknowledging what's going on right now, um, it's it's not a cure all for the rest of the day, but it'll get you by for a little while.
1: And you're working on your bo- your your mind and your body both at the same time, right? And then I think it it helps your spirit. It, it when it, your mind and your body feel relaxed, yeah. I think you're more in a place of to be able to relax, react to the world uh, from a place of uh, peace. Yes. And
0: there is there there's there's a kind of internal discord when, you know. And I'm not, not trying to go into any kind of metaphysical topics, but when you're living in the present and your mind is either in the past or in the future, that you, you, it can't be reconciled. So, of course, there's going to be some kind of stress that's caused, and that I think is where a lot of anxiety comes from. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I agree. Give me another one. Okay.
0: Um, <laughs> this kind of somewhat contradicts my previous statement, <laughs> yeah. but. I also have a fear that I overanalyze myself and that I'm finding nuance where there is nothing. And that mm-hmm. just constantly looking and looking and saying, oh, well, I found this or, oh, well, I found that. Mm-hmm. And then there's then there's another thought, well, maybe that's just bullshit. Maybe that's what it is. And
1: yeah. Isn't it funny how there there's a line somewhere in between self-reflection and self-obsession? Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to... To go from self-reflection, which is certainly healthy, yeah. to self-obsession, yeah, it, 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 I wish I knew a way to um, articulate where that line is. But I, I, most days, I don't know where that I don't yeah. know where that line is.
0: Yeah, I, I, I completely understand, and I, I feel like I, you know, and it goes down to that that comparison again, which I know in many of your podcasts says you know, is never fruitful, is never a positive thing, but I hear all these horrific people and it's like, yeah, I mean, things have really sucked at times in
1: my life, but
0: God, I wasn't thrown out a
1: window. Yeah. And I
0: never tried to stab myself with a sword when I was, you know, four or or whatever the age was from, from the other podcast. So then there's another part of me that makes me just feel like I just want, if I could take on that, 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 you know, pain, because obviously when I'm, you know, I'm, I'm making this out, you know, emotional incest and, and all this, that's not that bad, you know, so it's,
1: I'd say your dad crying on your shoulder about his breakup when you're 10 is pretty fucked up, dude. Yeah, that the image of that. It, made my skin crawl (laughs) it made my skin crawl it was profoundly weird (laughs) but you know what even it you know i think so many traumas are uh just a thousand tiny cuts yeah and that that's but oftentimes you know that may not be an episode that is um compelling Mm. So the criteria sometimes for me to want an episode is I want something to be compelling Mm -hmm. about it. So I do try to throw in occasionally an episode where there was nothing, where there was really no event to point to. Mm. Um, But I like stories. Yeah. So uh, to the listener out there that doesn't have an event or a series of events or anything traumatic to point to, if you're feeling fucked up that's still valid, yeah, and that's still enough reason to go to talk to somebody. Absolutely. And because what you do with your feelings is the thing that's universal, from the person who had the most traumatic uh, circumstances to the person that has no trauma yeah. at all yeah. and safe, loving family, but they're still like, why, why can't I shut my mind off? That is every bit as valid to uh. To want to go talk to somebody absolutely
0: and and i would also say um yes like people please don't don't take my you know what i'm saying right now is how you should feel because the one thing i can also from the physician side of things is that you learn over the years that everyone's Physical and emotional pain is subjective, and that it is entirely easy. Just as an example, to, for someone to break a leg and to walk it off, versus someone cutting themselves with a kitchen knife and immediately, you know, needing needing a painkiller. And, and mm-hmm. it's and it's neither one of those pains is invalid. And that's 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 the and it goes the, it's absolutely the same with the emotional issues. And I know that there's even been people on the on the podcast that. Um, you know, maybe he had ideal family lives. Uh, yep. the, the one early on, uh, I think, uh, uh he might've been a friend,
1: Mike, Mike Furman, he, a comedian. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah. No, I'm actually thinking of okay. older. He turned career criminal and he had a very good upbringing. Oh, Murph. Yes.
1: Yes. Yes. Ex-con. Murph. Yes. Yeah. That yes. was episode number four.
0: My God
1: encyclopedic yeah. knowledge oh no just like the first five episodes okay, I know. Sure. After okay that, sure after all it's just a blur of faces and tears <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's nice to know i'll be remembered for what i am <laughs> Let's uh, um yes. Yeah, oh, sorry. go ahead. With, no, you, no, no, no. Finish your thought. Oh, I didn't even. Oh, shoot! I didn't even get into a good story about how my dad spent my whole inheritance from my grandparents on day trading. But that that
1: was, well, I think you just summed it up. <laughs> yeah,
0: I guess that was that was another reason I was a little upset. Oh my god! I'm so
1: sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, let's go to some loves.
0: Okay. Um, uh, the uh, I guess the 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 breathless exhaustion that i would get when i do an earlier morning run that i swear i was not going to be able to do.
1: Oh, that's a good one. Yes. And then the endorphins. Absolutely.
0: This one which i i don't know, maybe a little bit bittersweet, but um
1: I like better, sweet. The,
0: the metaphorical, the, the clasp on on the shoulder, the hand on the shoulder by one of my many metaf- uh, my uh, pseudo-father figures that I've looked for throughout all these years, whether it be in family or in medicine. But, um, you know, some, someone telling me that I'm good.
1: I can tell that means a lot to you.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I mean I can't say like I mean I grew up with a very supportive mom, but um there's something, I don't know, there's there's something I never never really feel good. Um so that that's a that's a big one to 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 not feel f- failure. To not, to not,
1: That's a pretty low bar to try to get past <laughs> to it, to not feel failure.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it is. I, I feel... Ahead, I'm M- sorry. Might you even say that you did a good job? It's very hard for me to say that. Oh, my God, you are so hard on yourself. It's. I really, I feel regularly like I've, you know, failed something in some way, whether it be patient or, you know, it could be... It could be something stupid that I I beat myself up that I couldn't find anything to bring back home from where my last mission was to for family. I just didn't have the time. I think it's, it's okay, but I've still been psychologically abusing myself over something stupid like that. Or, you know, over we didn't have the medication that we could do to treat someone, but there's something else I could have done that I... And, you know, comparing myself to the other people and how there's always someone
1: that's better than I am. You know, it's it seems like the, to be emotionally healthy in life, it, it it would be like straddling this line where we can look at the positives in situations and still be able to reflect where we might have fallen short without beating ourselves up. And mm-hmm. that is like a one centimeter balance beam to to walk down, to, yeah. to, to ride. I've experienced days, weeks, yeah. maybe even months where I feel that where I'm yeah. not I'm not beating myself yeah. up and I feel a sense of meaning and purpose. But I'm also, you know, kind of checking in to go, was yeah. I you know, was I maybe a little too short sure with that person. Yeah. Oh yeah, I think I need you know, maybe need to make an apology. Yeah. But so often I am Five feet off the balance beam. I've fallen. My back hurts. Mm-hmm. I was a dick to my wife. <laughs> I played my video game for eight hours. Oh God, I, that
0: make I understand that. Yeah,
1: yeah. But um, you, you strike me as a really compassionate um, person whose mission is to is to. Learn how to love yourself, in, in and yeah. and starting in therapy, I think will be a great place for you. And yeah. I, and I would imagine a support group would be because support group, yeah, they loved me before I could love myself. I and yeah. I've been to a lot of therapy, yeah. and that couldn't get me that. It helped deal with some of the shame, mm-hmm. um, but the really being able to love myself, um, that that happened for me and and support groups because enough people loved me mm-hmm. unconditionally that i went okay maybe maybe they're not all bullshitting maybe i am lovable
0: yeah if you don't mind if i can pose a question to you there sure. um how long did it take you before you felt like you found a support group that you know really clicked or that because i i've certainly i found ones and mm-hmm. said you know these people are really sp- special they're really nice people but i i don't like, I don't buy into what's, what's going on here. Um, I bought into
1: the people at it before I bought into the process. Okay. And I looked at how their lives were working mm-hmm. and how the light in their eyes. And that, to me, told me that the process and the support groups worked. And that I was possibly just judging it before trying it. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't deny that I felt love and other good emotions when I would be in the room. So I clung to that. And I just surrendered to whatever the process was that they were going to suggest for me to do. And as I began to do it, I began to see it work. And then I came to believe that, oh, this, this can change my life. So there's a couple of different support groups that I go to one, probably within the uh, couple of weeks Mm -hmm. I was sold because it was, uh, it was the opposite of how I was feeling. Yeah. Um, -hmm. nobody seemed morose, depressed, suicidal. Um, Occasionally, maybe somebody new would be in there or somebody would be old and cranky. But for the most part, it was a room full of people whose lives were working, who were responsible, honest, and happy. Yeah. The second support group I started going to, um, that took me probably about nine months to feel a part of. Yeah. But I also sat in the back. I had my <clears throat> arms folded. I didn't go out for coffee afterwards with mm-hmm. anybody. Um, I didn't uh, pitch in. At the meetings, you know, I didn't offer to, you know, empty the garbage or do any uh, other stuff that, that they said, you know, yeah. here's here's how you deal yourself yeah. in. Um, once I started doing that, it felt like home. Really? And I love both of them. They're okay. both, they both recharge my battery more than anything else. Okay. Yeah.
0: And it wasn't. Necessarily, it was the same group. You didn't go from group to group to group.
1: Um, I tried a, a couple of different. You know, they were all under the banner of, of the same support group, yeah. but they were just different meetings. Yeah. Um, and there are some meetings that I won't go back to because it was just a group of people that they weren't really. There wasn't a lot of recovery. Right. Okay. Um, so when I would find a meeting where there was a lot of recovery, that's there's one I've been going to for ten years. Yes. That's just that. It's a group of guys that have raised me. Yeah. Emotionally, have yeah. raised me. There is just loaded with father figures that um, we cry, we laugh. Yeah, you know we we don't uh, we don't hold back on our masculinity and we yeah. don't hold back on our femininity. Yeah, and it's it's awesome.
0: It's very. You you brought up that that last point, which is probably one of the hardest things is growing up and and being in an environment. I think where where one you know you're being told by someone you know who's who's a parent that you know you're you're not good enough you're you're out of shape and then being you know bullied a lot um it's very hard to be emotional or appear weak quote unquote and that's one of the biggest things here and it's like even for me to say certain words and to have that trigger and to get very teared up it's like it's it's
1: hard to try it you got it's a leap of faith it is a leap of faith and every person to heal every person has to take a leap of faith yeah because you have to connect to another human being yeah and that is a leap of faith yes and occasionally yeah you'll you know maybe you'll find somebody that like a doctor was having a bad day yeah but the overall odds are great yeah and At least in the support groups that I go to, it is, there's a gazillion safety nets and I've leapt a thousand times and 999 times they've, they've caught me.
0: Okay, Well, I think that's,
1: that's. And the one time they didn't, didn't kill me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's the important point. Yes, absolutely. So I think considering being in that seeking phase right now, it's definitely something I'll let, I'm going to let stew. Okay. Give me one more love. Well, I, I could say, and this is something else I didn't even go into personally, but the one thing is is the, the sound of my girlfriend's voice when she sings to me at night when we're going to sleep. Um, this is the first, and I mean, it's early, but it's the first, I think, healthy relationship that I've, you know, going in through therapy and talking about it that I've been in, I think, ever. And that's considering a, a marriage that did not go well and a process of trying to find women that had pathologies before i met them um bulimics sexual assault victims people that horrific family backgrounds that i wanted wanted to save Mm -hmm. and surprisingly that did not make for for good (laughs) relationships I was really shocked
1: every single time. You, what could have gone wrong? How could I not change them? I'm Superman. Yeah, I'm also a piece of shit. Absolutely. I'm super shit.
0: Wow. That would have been an awesome Halloween costume. <laughs> Next year. Next year. Uh, that is a beautiful, that is a beautiful love. At, uh, she is amazing. She, she makes me better. Well, uh...
1: Tim, thank you so much for for coming and uh, talking about this. Thank
0: you so much for giving me the opportunity. I, I I hope I got my points across. I hope I didn't babble, and I hope I I hope it means something to to the people that listen because you do. Everyone that has these issues, you deserve every bit of compassion someone has to give you, and and don't don't let those experiences color everything. Thanks, buddy. Okay, thank you.
1: Many, many thanks to Tim. What a sweet man. Uh, and I sent him an email to ask for an update because we recorded this a couple of months ago. And, uh, he writes, um, uh, I'm actively interviewing to get back into specialty training and excited at the places it may take, take me. I've been making some breakthroughs with therapy, and it's led to some painful but enriching realizations about family. I'm more in touch with myself than ever before. i finally come to the point where I'm ready to start group, and I've found one that I'll start in January once I'm back in town. I'm still drinking, but have come to terms with it as a problem and something that ultimately must and will stop. I hope my words bring some understanding out there to people frustrated with their healthcare providers and also encourage uh, people in medicine to seek help and not ignore mental illness. Thank you for that, Tim. Um, I forgot to mention this. I am going to be coming to uh, San Francisco and Oakland in uh, late January. Um, I'm going to be performing um, my uh, satirical character at uh, Sketchfest, Friday, January 22nd, Um, and Thursday, uh, January 21st, I'm going to be doing a live podcast uh, recording outside of Sketchfest, not associated with that, um, at a club in Oakland, and I'll be interviewing a comedian, Guy Branham, so uh, I'll have more details on that and a link so you can uh, purchase tickets. Uh, I believe tickets will be... uh, Fifteen in advance, twenty at the door, and uh, like I said, it'll be in in um, in Oakland on Thursday night, uh, January twenty first, at seven thirty p.m. in Oakland. Um, I'd like to say Oakland one more time. Before I get to some surveys, I want to remind you guys, there's a couple of different ways you can support the show. You can go to our website, mentalpod.com, and make a one-time PayPal donation, or my favorite, become a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. It um, may not seem like a lot to you, but it adds up, and it helps keep the show going, and it means the world to me. So um, if you could do that, that would be awesome. Also, if you're going to buy something in Amazon, enter through our search portal uh, on our website. Uh, I believe it's on the uh, Support the Show page, and uh, Amazon will give us a couple of nickels if you buy something um, when you enter through that, that portal, and it doesn't cost you any more. You can also support us non-financially by going to iTunes and giving us a good rating and writing something nice. Um, you can also support us uh, by spreading the word through social media about the podcast. All of those things um, greatly, greatly help, so thank you. Let's get to some surveys. This uh, this is from the Body Shame Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Grimmy, and she writes um, to the question, what do you like or dislike about your body? She writes, when I am alone, I love my body. I have wide hips, a large bust, a tummy, strong legs, and I'm tall for a girl. I have some friends who really help build me up and make me feel beautiful. However, when I'm around some of my family or at work, and especially around large, around large groups of people who... When I am on my own, I sometimes feel like I'm going to burst into tears. I start to feel too fat and that my clothes are too tight or too revealing. I hate the attention my chest gets from men. It makes me angry when I catch them looking or making comments. Thank you for that, Grammy. It's amazing how much our mental state can can influence how we feel about our physical appearance. Unbelievable. This is... um. Struggle in a sentence filled out by um, uh, a woman who calls herself, time to fling myself into the sun. She's a teenager, actually. And uh, about her anxiety, she writes, I've done something terrible and everyone knows the disgusting details except me. That's a great one. This is filled out by Rusty Jim and about his depression. He writes, feels like my body was pumped full of cement while I was asleep. About his anxiety, everyone wants to murder me. I don't blame them. Oh, that is a great one. About his food addiction, eating keeps my body alive, but it also makes me feel dead inside. About his anger issues, being in my line of sight can make me fantasize about slitting your dumb fucking throat. Snapshot from his life, I used to close my eyes when driving for 20-ish seconds at a time praying for death. Oh, buddy. I'm glad you said I used to, and you don't do it anymore. I'm pretty sure the DMV, uh, if that were on their test, uh, even if it was a dotted line, uh, I think you that, that would still probably be illegal. This was a shame and secret survey filled out by Abby. She is uh, 17. She's straight. She was raised, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um she's never been sexually abused. Uh, not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. She writes when I was a young child, I used to hang around with people who I thought were my friends, but who I now know weren't i can't remember all the spe- specifics, but there was always a lot of emotionally damaging things that they said, especially around the fact that I switched schools because I am gifted. Darkest thoughts i've recently been wondering what it would be like to be dead, not to have committed suicide, but in the sense of who would actually miss me. What would my funeral be like? How would my family and friends cope with my death? Questions like these sometimes consume my thoughts. Darkest Secrets. The first time I cut myself and drew blood, I was so happy. Previously, I'd just been scratching myself with paper clips, etc., because I wanted to hurt myself but could not bring myself to cut. Then I tried cutting with a razor and didn't draw blood, and I thought to myself, wow, you aren't even good at this. When I finally was able to break the surface of my skin, it was the, quote, happiest, because who even knows what happiness feels like? I certainly don't. I had felt in a very long time. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? If anything, I would like to tell my parents that I believe without a doubt that I am depressed, but this is something that I do not know how they would take. My mom is a counselor by trade, and I know that if I tell her, she will try to, quote, fix me, and I just really want her to be my mom. Um, you know, my thought is when I read this, Abby, is that you should read this to your mom or cue The podcast up to this point, and play this for her because I know, I know, it will get it will get through to your mom. Your mom sounds like a good person um, who wants to do best by you. And I think one of the most common mistakes we make as friends or partners or parents of people is we want to try to fix them instead of sometimes just in the moment listening and um what you want is is so beautiful um and so um normal and healthy and and i believe that your mom wants to give that to you um so i think it's just really about you guys communicating Uh, so that's that's my two cents um what if anything do you wish for to feel normal have you shared these things with others no because i'm too scared about how they will react how do you feel after writing these things down? A lot of shame, but at the same time, it's nice to get the thoughts that have been bouncing around in my brain for the longest time out. Um, yeah. Um, that's, that's my two cents, Abby, but sending you some love. Hang in there. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Nemo. And, uh, she's a teenager about her depression. She writes, Mild depression. I observe myself laughing from 100 miles away. Must be nice, I think. Um, snapshot from her life. I got up this morning and walked a foot away from my bed. I then slowly sunk to the floor and stayed there almost motionless for three hours. Oh my God. What a snapshot that is. What a snapshot. I think, I think 90% of the people, myself included, when we read that or hear that immediately want to give you a hug. And our second thought is, that sounds so comfortable. <laughs> it sounds. There have been so many times. But I got to tell you, honestly, I would go in the closet. I, Herbert sleeps on a pile of clothes in the closet. And every time I see him in there, I think, why the fuck can I do that? Because that looks so cozy and safe and soft. I used to have a dream when I was a kid. I, I don't, Some of you that are older Remember the the TV show, I Dream of Jeannie? And she lived in this bottle that had all these... It was like a circular couch. At the base of the bottle was like a circular couch. And um, it just looked so cozy and safe and away from everybody. And it was colorful and it had all these pillows. And I used to dream about living in that bottle. Um, This is a shame and secret survey filled out by... uh, woman who calls herself pink leather. She's in her 30s. She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. She's never been sexually abused. She has been emotionally abused. She writes, last year I attempted suicide twice. I spent five weeks inpatient, then two days a week uh, for six weeks I had ECT, electric shock therapy, which would leave me exhausted. I also spent four weeks in an outpatient partial hospitalization program. My husband of 15 years became withdrawn from me and mean. He dropped hints that I wasn't good enough, wasn't doing enough around the house, etc. He stopped talking to me and made me feel uncomfortable and unwanted in our house. He started to control my access to our money, would only give me an allowance to spend on groceries each week. He started to control my behavior, refused to let me drink alcohol socially, and limiting when I could go out again. A month ago, he told me he would never forgive me for the suicide attempts. He was never going to trust me again. Uh... I think I speak for the rest of us when I say, fuck him. Um, Would never forgive you for the suicide attempts. What a narcissist that he thinks your suicide attempts are about him. Um, Now, whether or not there are any other issues in here, you know, it sounds like there might be an issue with you and alcohol, but that is a separate issue from your uh, suicide attempts and him thinking that you owe him an apology um, for that. Um, God. Any positive experiences with your abusers? I've been with him for fifteen years. I love him. I always will. We have two amazing children. How can he hate me so much? But, you know, my thought is is that he is probably projecting some something on himself that that he hates or that frightens him. And I was thinking the other day about. You know, if you look at anger, underneath anger, there's always fear. And so many of our emotions, if you look underneath them, it's being triggered by some other emotion. And I honestly think the two primary emotions that everything springs from are love and fear. Uh, Almost anything can be be brought back to, to those two things. And it sounds like your husband is coming at you from a place of fear and not a place of of love. And um, I don't know what it's like to be in his shoes. It sounds like he's got his hands full, but um, if you guys aren't in counseling, I, I would get there as soon as possible. Uh, darkest thoughts. I regret having my children. A mother isn't supposed to say that. I hadn't found out I was so sick at the time or I wouldn't have done it. They're too much work for me to cope with. I'd let my husband have full custody but I'm ashamed of what people would think of me killing myself seems the best idea on hard days I can't cope with a life i made for myself and i'm bringing my family down with me well you know if aside from the way your husband talks to you um oh, shut up paul i, I was going to go to go to counseling with your with your husband uh Darkest Secrets. When I was 18, I had my first suicide attempt. This was pre-internet and it wasn't as easy to research. The bottle of vodka I took, uh, the random collected pills with made me sick. I awoke the next morning in a pile of vomit. I cleaned everything up, showered, and went to school. Terrified my parents would find out. I wish every single day I'd died back then. I wouldn't have had to hurt so many other people. Um... Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I've been into BDSM since I was a kid. My first experience of masturbating, I tied myself up. I fantasize of more extreme BDSM scenarios, especially being caged. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish my parents knew the pain I've been in since a child, how bullied I was, how miserable I was, but I could never tell them they'd be so hurt. Then it would all become about them and their feelings. Um... What, what a textbook example of the damage that narcissistic parents can inflict on children. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for just to disappear, not to exist anymore? Have you shared these things with others? I have the most amazing therapist who has saved my life on many an occasion. I tell him everything. No one else seems safe anymore. How do you feel after writing these things down? Upset, seeing how much of a wreck my life is. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I don't think I'm qualified to give advice, but you're not alone and someone understands. Well, thank God you're going to, you're going to therapists and hopefully they can help you navigate through this shit with your, uh, your husband. This is an awful some moment filled out by day I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, who is um, uh, non-binary and their are awful some moment. I remember I was about eight years old and we had just moved into a new house. It was very old and much larger than our previous tiny home, so it had a mystical feeling to it. There was a huge avocado tree right in the center of the backyard. While my brother and I were exploring, we found an old, beautifully carved, small wooden box sticking slightly out of the ground, being pushed up by the roots of the tree. I was so over the moon. I felt like I was in an adventure book, and this was the beginning of our journey. I thought we had found treasure or a time capsule or an old magical relic. We brought it to my dad, and he cut the lock off and slowly opened the box while my brother was doing a drum roll. I was shaking with anticipation. I remember thinking, this is the coolest thing that has ever happened to me. Inside was a few dirty syringes, a pipe, and a couple of baggies of what I only assume now was heroin. I'm actually relieved reading that because when I first read this, I thought it was going to be a severed head, which actually would have been an even better, awfulsome moment. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Sally sells seashells by the OCD shore and about uh, being a uh, sex crime victim. She writes, he continues to steal from me even years later by taking money out of my wallet every time I go to a counseling session. Oh, that is heavy. so true. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself cosmemophobic. I don't know what that means. Um, It's too bad there's not an internet where I could find out. She is in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, She's straight, and her survey is only partially filled out, uh, so I'm just going to read what what she has. Um, She's never been sexually abused, but she has been physically and emotionally abused. My dad used to beat me as a teenager occasionally in a drunken rage and would tell me I would never achieve anything or be successful. I wish he was alive because I am now wealthy and successful, but meh. Darkest thoughts. I'm extremely ashamed that I fantasize about my stepdaughter dying in her sleep. I don't want her to have a horrible, painful death, but I don't want her to be in my life anymore. Um, Paul, please read this. I need your help and advice. I, I'm too ashamed to go to anyone else in fear of being judged. judged. Any good therapist would not judge you for this. Any good therapist would say, well, what can we do to help with this? Let's talk about this. Let's talk about your childhood. Let's talk about what your step... Uh, daughter does that uh, triggers you, and you are not a horrible person for for having those thoughts and feelings. There there are there's no such thing as a horrible <clears throat> as a a um, immoral feeling. Uh, it's just what what we do with it. So um, yes. Uh, darkest Secrets. My partner and I have been together for 10 years and the only reason we haven't spoken about marriage is because his daughter and I don't get along. I have tried for 10 long years to love her, but it's really obvious it never will happen. My partner and I have a fantastic relationship apart from that. If this ever gets read by anyone, I'm sure you will all judge me and tell me how much of a selfish fucked up human being I am for staying uh, for staying in this because uh, I should have left the relationship years ago, right? I don't want any children of my own, but I'm stuck with this brat whether I like it or not. We only care for her half the time, but when I get home from work and she's back from her mom's, I get this horrible feeling like I just want to send her right back. I can't believe I'm willing to live like this. We fight a lot or I'll just keep everything bottled up and try to go out so I don't have to be home around her. I take any drugs I can get my hands on just to deal with having her around. I know I have codependency, so if I left, I know I would probably end my life. I have no friends. I don't see how seeing a therapist would fix anything. You couldn't be more wrong about that. And it, it, um, you saying, I take any drugs I can get my hands on just to deal with having her around. You can't blame, nobody can blame their drug abuse on another person. Um, so, uh, even more reason to go see a therapist and maybe get into some type of support group for codependency or or drug abuse. And I guarantee you that will help you deal with people in your life that push your buttons. But it's work and it's humbling and it takes asking for help. And I can tell you there is no way to, you know, to use the, the cliche, to have your cake and eat it too here. There is no way to... Um, to have your stepdaughter drive you less crazy, with you not working on yourself. That's the that's the the, the weird loophole of um, recovery is that to help us deal with other people, it's not about fixing them. It's about fixing ourselves, and then we find that we have more um, tools to deal with people that fucking piss us off or scare us or abuse us or whatever. I hope that all made sense. Um, this is, hold on, sip of tea. But let me reiterate, you are not a terrible person for having those feelings about your about your stepdaughter. Um, this is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this was filled out by um, Quinn. Quinn who is a a trans male. And uh, Quinn writes, I've been dealing with... uh, What are your issues? I've been dealing with depression and anxiety since I was 11 years old. I'm nearly 24 now. Uh, So for the last decade, I've been on a couple of different meds and I've gone on and off to therapists. Additionally, I'm transgender and I have some dysphoria relating to that. Overall, I'd say that being trans has compacted my depression and anxiety. There are days when it's so difficult to leave the house just because I can't bear the feeling of constantly being misgendered. What has helped you deal with them? Combination of drugs and therapy, mostly, along with me growing up a bit more and coming to understand myself better. I'm currently on the track to start medically transitioning to better show my preferred gender. Just knowing that's happening and will happen helps a lot. When things get bad, whether that's depression or anxiety, my, quote, regeneration mode is to play video games with rich storylines or break out my watercolors. Generally, when my headspace is a mess, I need to be alone. And for the past year or so, I've finally been able to ask for that alone space and for the people around me to respect that. Good for you. Uh, What have things, if any, have people said or done that have helped you with your issues? There have been several times in my life where my parents said something along the lines of, you make things more difficult for yourself, or you always like to do things the hard way. A few months ago, I told my therapist about that, and she straight up said to me, this isn't your fault. You didn't choose to be depressed or have an anxiety disorder. And that, uh, I floated through uh, the rest of my week. Um high on the revelation that my mental illnesses weren't my fault, and that every time I struggled to do even the most simple things, it wasn't that there was something wrong with me or that what was going uh, wrong was my fault. It's like someone who uses a wheelchair, you don't tell that person, hey, you can't walk. Wow, you make your life difficult. So not only did I have some internalized stigma against mental illnesses, so did my parents. My therapist, by saying something so very simple, helped me understand myself better. Since then, I've treated myself more gently and with greater compassion and care, which were things I never really allowed myself before. And I would bet, Quinn, I would bet that you, as a result, are treating other people with greater compassion, um, gentleness, and and patience. Thank you for that. This is a happy moment filled out by Henry. And um, hold on one second who is, uh, he's 17, and his happy moment, he writes, when I was in elementary school, I went on a school camping trip. My home life at the time was filled with emotional and physical violence from my alcoholic father. So going on this trip was already nice to start with. Uh, My group's cabin leader was an African-American guy in his 20s. One day he asked me something about my personal life and I was too scared to open up about it. So I said something like, you wouldn't understand. Later that night, he walked me out of the cabin while everyone else went to sleep. He asked me, what's going on? Like if he could see through my eyes that I was in pain. Uh, I immediately started crying and telling him everything about my home life. It was the first time I had opened up about that part of my life with anyone. He listened and gave me the most comforting hug that I have ever received. His last words to me were, keep your head up. I will never forget him. Thank you for that, Henry. Um, and you're 17, so you are, you are a year away from getting away from, hopefully, from getting out of that toxic environment that you're living in. Um, any suggestions to make the podcast better? Uh, he writes, there's a guy named Henry Rollins who has given me a great deal of inspiration throughout my life. You may know him better as the ex-vocalist of the California punk band Black Flag, um, you should have him on as a guest. I would love to have Henry Rollins, and I do know who he is. Um, this is from the What Has Helped You survey. This is filled out. Oh, Henry. Henry, doubling up on on our Henrys. His uh, issues are anxiety, bipolar, uh, and dissociative disorder. And what has helped him? Music, writing, and exercise. And what if people... Said or done that have helped you. He writes people with similar symptoms talking to me about their experience and them listening to my experience. It helped me put a name to my disorder and fully grasp the effects it has on me. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by, I don't know how to pronounce this, but I'll give it a shot, Larissa Anjou. Um, about her sex addiction, she writes, I knew I was attractive. You get to sleep with me, and you and you. Everyone gets to sleep with me. Next day, walk of shame. I knew I was undesirable. I'm only good for fucking, not for loving. Uh, about her skin picking and nail biting, she writes, too much tension in my hands, my body. Release it by skin pick, skin picking and nail biting. Uh, extract impurities. The mild pain is nice. It's a release valve for the tension to ease out face neck chest shoulders back hands Uh, about experiencing uh, racial or cultural bias she writes i'm too white to be considered a quote real latina i'm tired of feeling the need to explain myself to rightfully claim my ethnic identity thank you for that this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself gray arrow he's straight he's in his 20s 20s, he was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, He has never been sexually abused. He has been physically and emotionally abused. He writes, Growing up, my brother hit me so often, I still to this day flinch if someone raises a hand to me. The occasional high five is met with a shudder of fear. My parents divorced when I was eight, and ever since then, my mother has treated me as if I was a replacement for my father. She doesn't believe in boundaries and dries off after a shower with the bathroom door open. She says she doesn't want us to be, quote, ashamed of our bodies, but there's still a word called modesty. Yeah, by the way, that is a form of sexual abuse. That is absolutely a form of sexual abuse, uh, a parent doing that to, um, to a child. Um, and the treating you like your replacement for her father is emotional incest so um do not minimize these things um any positive experiences with your abusers i love my mother to death but i feel as if uh i were to leave home she'd kill herself she's threatened this before oh that is that is so abusive that is so abusive i'm so sorry Darkest thoughts. Uh, I want to fuck every woman I see. Fat, skinny, tall. I want them all. Um, Darkest secrets. Uh, I've been cheating on my girlfriend for almost a year, but I'm too much of a coward to just leave her. I've started multiple online relationships with women, never hooking up with them, just simply taking in those feelings of being wanted and using them to fan my ego. You know, and this, this uh, again, I, I'm, I'm no mental health professional, but man, this, this sounds like, um, like sex addiction, which is so common with people who have been sexually abused or emotionally incested by a parent. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to have an orgy with as many women as possible. Just have them all around me, pleasing them all one by one until my cock falls off. Um, how does that make you feel? I feel heard and slightly aroused. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my girlfriend, I'm sorry. I can't tell her though, because then my charade will be over. You know, my my thought is, is I'm, is I'm reading what happened to you as a kid and the way you're acting out now is if you don't get help, um, it, it's probably not going to change. And I would make getting help for sex addiction, um, your highest priority, you know, or at least going to talk to, um, a therapist who specializes in, um, sex, uh, addiction to find out if, if they believe you're uh, a sex addict, they're called CSATs, that's C S A T, which is certified sex addiction therapist. And, um, and to process these things that your, that your mom, um, did to you, um, uh, oh all right let me continue reading this uh what if anything do you wish for happiness i i don't i don't find anything that makes me truly happy maybe i'm just not meant to be happy have you shared these things with others no i'm afraid to expose these feelings because everyone will know how broken i truly am you are not broken you are not broken you may be um you may be um wounded but you are not broken How do you feel after writing these things down? Better. Frustrated because I wish I could outthink my thinking problem, but we all know that's impossible. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You and I need to seek out a sex addicts support group. Well, there we go. There we go. So get to it, buddy. Get to it. And uh, sending you lots of love. This is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this is filled out by M's. And uh, her issues are anxiety and moderate depression. And what has helped you? Therapy, walking, jogging, and letting myself feel my feelings. Meditation is great for just sitting and sitting with and identifying feelings. Uh, What have people said or done that has helped you? Uh, Whenever someone on the podcast says an exact fear, a burden is lifted from me. It's a connection with a stranger. It makes me feel like a human instead of a freak. Uh, Paul talking about your mother making you feel icky has finally let me say the same thing about my dad. He never touched me or said anything really creepy. All he did was check out women in front of me and tell inappropriate jokes. He would demean women for their physical appearance, including my mom. It just made me so sick. It made me think that all men objectify and judge women physically like that. I can tell you all men do not. Sadly, too many do. Um, And... What you experienced um, is every bit as serious as um, a parent um, physically violating you. Um, It is the, the message that is sent by the parent that beats the kid, fucks the kid, or ogles women and demeans them in front of their kid is that you don't matter. That is the injury. This is from the My First Day in Therapy survey, and this was filled out by a woman who is between 26 and 35, and um, she's a therapist. And what brought you to therapy? I started experiencing horrible panic attacks after years of chronic anxiety. One day it was so bad that I couldn't calm myself down, so I called up a crisis hotline, and the kind gentleman gave me the number to a few places where I could go and talk. Describe any fears you had associated with starting therapy, either as a client or the therapist. I was kind of terrified. I spent about an hour before my appointment sitting in the parking lot crying. The vulnerability of actually going and doing something for myself felt like too much. I was scared of giving myself the identity of someone with problems. Of your fears, uh, did any of them come true? vulnerability is scary for me i'm used to helping others all the time things are still scary for me so i still have to push myself to go because the feelings after it are worth it um as a client describe what works best for you in therapy uh safe place for sure non-judgment seeing things from more of an objective viewpoint Definitely the homework. I've had people give me advice before, but the fact that she understands how hard it is for me to follow it makes me feel less guilt over the thought of not doing it, and I find myself less sef- self-defeating because of it. Um, as a client, what were your initial impressions of your therapist? I, f- I felt pretty good. She was close to my age, so it felt like she could understand better. I didn't like when she seemed distracted or looked at her watch. Um you feel like you can be completely honest with your therapist? I feel like I can be uh, absolutely honest. She's the only person I feel I can be honest with that will respond appropriately. I came to that feeling when after venting for a good 30 minutes, she tells me that considering how much more trauma I've experienced in my life than the average person, she isn't surprised I have so many mental issues. I was surprised. I tried to look at my life um, positively, but I never knew that things were that bad. I said positively, That's the staple is right in the wrong, oh, objectively, but I never knew that things were that bad. It really made me rethink things. Um, Is there anything you'd like to share with a group of new therapists? Uh, Distractions might happen, even if the environment is set up so they don't. Excusing yourself is more acceptable than acting distracted while someone is venting. Great point. Uh, And then finally, we have a happy moment filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself lost uh, at land and uh, her happy moment on the phone with my father for at least two to three hours. I was painting and had him on speakerphone and he was telling me funny stories about going to concerts as a teenager. We lived in different states and both were busy, but that night we just really connected and I was playing the stones, which led him into these stories. I painted as he talked, and we laughed and really connected. I would take pictures of the process of my painting and send them to him during our conversations, and he was so impressed and complimented me and then continued with the stories until my painting was done. It's probably the best painting I've ever made. So beautiful. So beautiful. My favorite thing in the world is just those little moments when when parents just... Put the rest of their life on on hold for that moment and just uh, witness their k- kids being themselves and don't try to change them and and just connect with them. It's so, so beautiful, so beautiful. Uh, well, I hope you guys are surviving uh, the Bermuda Triangle. Um, if you want to start a nap club, I will just tell me where to send my fee, and uh, I will become a charter member. Um, I got an envelope this this uh, this week um, telling me that my pillow is going to be inducted into the Pillow Hall of Fame, so I'm pretty excited about that, but they need me to give them my pillow to bronze it, so <laughs> I'm already tired of this bit. Oh, I love starting a bit and then just bailing on it. Uh, Herbert update. He's going to get a couple of teeth pulled tomorrow. The doctor has him on a diet, uh, which he is not happy about. But they added another med and his coughing seems a little better. So I might have jumped the gun when I said that he was dying. But uh, aren't we all dying? Let's end the podcast on that. We're all dying. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. If you're out there and you're feeling stuck, you are not alone. You are most definitely not alone. And um, the one constant in the world is that things change. So, if you know one of my friends at uh, my support group tonight said, "If uh, if things are terrible right now, they will get better. And if things are great right now, fucking enjoy them." So, suck on that. And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.